May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The letter to the Philippians in your New Testament lesson today um, was written sometime around the year 60 A.D., and it's actually a piece of personal mail. It's, um, it's a letter from a pastor to a church. And not entirely unlike uh, the letter that many of you got from me this week uh, as an email, a little different in that it was sent, written on a, on a piece of parchment instead of uh, passing through the Internet. But other sort of discrepancies, um, the occasion for writing was sort of a farewell letter, uh, uh, probably the last time I'll see you sort of letter. And, um, and also this difference from the letter you received from me is that it is much more thorough and theologically dense. And by that I mean it's, it's complicated and, and intricate and involved no more so than in this passage that was read today, a very, very, um, a very, very theologically rich but also compact and dense part of the letter. You'll recall, perhaps, that the letter to the Philippians was written by a, a Christian preacher and missionary named Paul. Um, you perhaps know that Paul often is difficult to understand. He's complicated and nuanced and, um, and writes in a very involved way. Also difficult to understand sometimes because we're removed by so much time. For instance, this Philippian letter written in 60 A.D., uh, 2,000 years ago. We're picking up a a piece of personal mail written 2,000 years ago. We don't have the author in front of us, nor do we have the audience. We have to sort of put this together. What's more, it was written by a Middle Eastern Jew to people living in a Roman colony in an ancient Greek language. I mean, it is very um, difficult to sort of work through, but we have resources. And with, with a, a great deal of certainty, we can make out almost everything that Paul was trying to say. Why he was writing the letter, what he was trying to say, what he meant by this. A little bit of uh, uh, variations in interpretation, but not too much. Now, you remember, perhaps, in our previous installment of this investigation, we saw that Paul urged unity in the church through exercising humility. One of the big dangers to the church was that we would break apart because everybody was had, had egos involved and, and wanted to be right. And Paul is saying, give up your right to be right. Embrace humility. Keep unity. And my point, of course, was if it was good for the Philippians in 60 AD, it's just as good for Christians living in Ohio in 2017. This still applies to us. Paul, though, didn't think that the only danger to the church in Philippi was through internal struggles. It wasn't just that people were going to get in fights about, you know, what political party to involve, you know, vote for or what color the carpet ought to be. There were other dangers to the church. And as you turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, he begins to deal with one of these. There were specific people who were following Paul around. You remember, he's a, he's a missionary. He would go to an area, Philippi. There was no Christian church there. He would plant a church. That People would come to faith in Jesus, baptize them. And, and then they would gather together in Christian communities and, and worship. And he would stay there, sometimes for a year or two. And then he would move on to somewhere else and plant another church. Do the same, repeat the whole process all over again. And there were these men who would follow him around. As soon as Paul would leave, they would come in. And they would begin preaching, and they looked like they belonged. They, they had the right sort of message, it seemed like. Um, they were learned. They were Jewish, like Paul was. They, um, they had all the outward signs of piety. 
They seem to be holy men. They seem to be credentialed men. But their message was just a little different. Just slightly nuanced. So much so that it was imperceptible, I think, to most people. They didn't even realize that there was this little difference. But Paul thought that this little difference was so big that it destroyed the entire message of the gospel. Here's what the the men following Paul would do. They would show up and they would say, yes, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe that. Yes, of course, God raised him from the dead. Believe that. It's important. It's, it's essential that you believe that. But what next? How does one advance in the faith? How does one become qualitatively more holy? Paul didn't tell you this bit. Let's t- we're going to tell you how to do that. And they would begin to say, first of all, Gentile men who grew up in a pagan home, you have to be circumcised according to the Jewish custom. And then all people, men and women, would have to follow certain dietary laws, keep kosher. You had to watch a Jewish calendar and uh, uh, follow it uh, meticulously. You would have to practice things like um, baptizing one's hands and before you ate or, or before you would uh, drink. I was in, in Jerusalem and saw that this still happens. Went to the Western Wall, and the first thing you have to do is stop and, and baptize your hands in these, in these, uh, with these vessels. You pour water in and pour them over the top of your hands. I went to another site, and there were Orthodox who were sitting there eating ice cream. But before they ate ice cream, they had to stop and baptize their hands. These sorts of things were, were being told. Listen, Christians, if you want to grow in faith in Christ, you have to do these things. Are they right? See, this is the people they don't understand. Did Paul leave something out? Or maybe he just forgot and doesn't get any around to it. Or does this somehow undercut the gospel? Put the question on its head. What indeed does God require from Christians once they come to faith? Well, chapter 3, Paul tells you what he thinks about these men who are following him around preaching. The good people who put together the lectionary... The lectionary, those little passages, that is the sequence, you know, the Isaiah 5 together with um, Philippians 3 uh, and, and the, the psalm and the gospel reading. These are set by, um, by people who, uh, who, you know, love the church and, and want the thorough reading of the Bible. But sometimes they get a little worried, you know. <laughs> Maybe we can't have that. A lot of times I've seen where we have like verses, you know, 1 through 6 and then, and then 9 through 11. And I want to know, what does it say in 7 and 8? You know, that's where I want to go. Uh, they left out a couple of verses here today. They didn't pick up in chapter 3 to let us know what Paul thinks about these men. If you want to know what he says, page 1165 in your pew Bibles will tell you. And I don't know how you could resist this. I mean... This is really juicy bit of, uh, uh, of information here. Here's what, here's what he says. It's a little salty. I'm going to tell you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, 1165, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Uh, he's written to him before, right? I'm going to tell you these things again. Look out for the dogs. <laughs> Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators. They're the same people. He's using three different adjectives to describe the same people. Dogs. 
evildoers, mutilators. I would probably translate this if I was doing it in like a modern um, uh, equivalency, something like those rat fink jerk theological hacks. <laughs> These people who have no idea what they're talking about. Dogs, this is a, this is a, a very um, derisive term that, that people used, actually Jews used of Gentiles. And Paul, a Jew, is using it of uh, other Jews. You dogs. They, not like pets, like, not like sweet dogs like we have in our homes, not like my Lucy, um, but more like, um, like a, a rabid coyote, you know, that you're, you want to stay away from. Watch out for them. Beware, some translations would have this word. When I was a teenager, I was remembering a time when um, my buddy Rob and I, we, we used to break curfew a lot, okay? Um, and we were out late one night. It happened. All right, and, and so I lived, in a, I lived in a kind of rough neighborhood growing up, more than kind of rough. It was really rough. And, uh, and one night we were out really late and we're, we're uh, you know, 20 blocks from my house and have a long way to cut through. And we're walking and it's dark and um, in my neighborhood, you sort of had to be ready to fight. I mean, it was going to happen sooner or later. And so we're walking. It's late at night, just the two of us. Good chance that we're going to come along somebody. And so our eyes are peeled. We're looking. We're paying attention. But as we're walking along, we walk past this alleyway, really dark in there, and I wasn't really noticing it. And all of a sudden, I hear this growl and then this repeated, you know, Bark like like a really woo like, like that <laughs> kind of bark and 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 the sound of what must have been a four hundred pound dog um, that comes running down the alleyway and so I did what you would do I threw Rob towards the dog and I ran you know and, and as I got a few feet away I heard him laughing and the dog was on a chain and it got to the end of the chain and he was fine. <laughs> And he looks at me and says, gee, Joe, um, you know, way to, way to put yourself out there for me, you know, way to spare your life. Um, if only there had been a sign, right? Like, beware of dog. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> a sign. Watch out. Paul's giving them a sign. Beware of dogs. Not the four-footed kind, but the people who preach confidence in the flesh. Now, he doesn't mean this in the way he sometimes means. Confidence in the flesh, Paul means anybody who puts their, their, their hope in, in advancing in the faith in their own ability to do things. Anyone who has confidence in the flesh, your own ability to muster up the strength to become qualitatively holier. Now, there is a predicate that Paul and what I call the preaching dog share, and that's this. That having come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is an expectation that we all grow in faith. That we all grow in faith. That we mature. The the Old Testament lesson, the Gospel, the Psalm, all talked about uh, grapes and vineyard. This is a, a metaphor that goes throughout Scripture. But I want you to imagine that you were planting a vineyard. You're going to start a vineyard so you can sell wine, right? And And you want to sell a good wine. You plant those plants. Do you expect to have wine at the end of that year? No. Those, those vines have to grow. And even when you finally get to mature vines, that fruit comes on. You don't pick it as soon as you see it. It has to grow and develop and mature. This image is the image that God has of, of people who follow him, that we ought to grow and mature. 
There ought to be a, 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 an advancement in our um, the quality of our lives. Listen, if you have faith in Christ right now, you are already in Christ. You are in Christ. Just like if somebody rang you on the phone, and if they do, don't answer, but if they rang you on the phone right now and said, hey, where are you? And you said, I'm in church. <laughs> I'm in church. You are in Christ. This is Paul's language. Not Christ is in you. That's true too. But you are in Christ. But being in Christ does not mean that we're like painted stones in a garden that people walk by and say, oh, isn't that lovely? Or like a trophy on a trophy case. Wow, isn't that great? No, we are to advance. We are to grow. We are to be growing Christians. Listen to Paul's language in verse 8. I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them as rubbish. I think it's a funny translation for an American version of the Bible. I don't know anybody who says rubbish in the United States. They, all, they say it in the UK, the rubbish bin, you know, whatever. They don't say it here. I have a garbage can in my house. I know you do. Or I have a trash can. I don't have a rubbish bin. I know. And, and maybe you do. But most people don't. But that's not even the funniest part about this. Scubala, the word, doesn't mean garbage. It means that which you find on the floor of a horse's stall. And I'm not talking about hay either. (laughs) The old King James translates this dung. There's another word perhaps you've heard around the water cooler that even more closely uh, approximates what Paul is using here. I count everything. What? What is the things he counts as rubbish, (laughs) as garbage, as dung? That I was born a Jew circumcised the eighth day of the house of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as approaching Torah blameless. I count all of that stuff loss. Why? So that I can pursue Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, that is the resurrection, or that I am already perfect. St. Paul writing in 60 A.D., says, I am not already perfect. I'm not there. And if you're like me, you're like, I'm glad he said that because I'm not there either. I know only too well my own failings. I am altogether aware of my shortcomings, as you are of yours. I know the things that I struggle with. But that doesn't mean I get to excuse them. Listen up, Paul says, verse 14. If, if you had a pencil and underlined anything, this would be it. I press toward the goal. I forget everything that's behind, and I press toward the goal. I am moving forward that to live like Jesus. John Wesley, an 18th century Anglican priest, talked about Christian perfection. About pursuing Christian perfection. And you know what? We all ought to seek Christian perfection like a runner that, that, that presses towards the goal, that wants to, to, to win the prize, that we press towards the goal of knowing Jesus. But how does one do that? This is where Paul and, and the preaching dogs differ. 
Paul says it's not through asceticism. It's not through personal prohibitions. In medieval period, people used to wear hair shirts. Like if they wanted to be really holy, they would wear these shirts made out of human and animal hair underneath their clothes that nobody could see. They would think that by inflicting pain on their body, and here's how it would be painful, they would get infected with lice and all sorts of insects, and it would bite them. And they would feel this constantly. But nobody could see it, and they thought by torturing their body, it would make them holier. Paul says this is not the way it works. Not through personal prohibitions. You know what? Not even through memorizing Bible verses or pumping praise music through your house. Those things are fine. But they are not the things that make us qualitatively more like Christ. It is in embracing the life of Christ that we become more like him. It is in embracing things like the Sermon on the Mount, giving up our right to judge one another, forgiving one another when something goes wrong, keeping our vows and promises that we make, being truthful in what we say, picking the log out of our own eye before we pick a speck out of someone else's. By appropriating the means of grace, hearing the word of God and responding to it, coming to the Holy Sacrament, which St. Paul says shows Christ's death until he comes. Embracing the sufferings of Christ in this world. When I was a kid, I used to play this game um, with my friends and uh, with my brother, you know, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know if you ever played that, but uh, this is what we do. We name me toys. We you know, had to make our own fun. Um, <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? And my uncle, whom I adored, my uncle Jack, he was a um, he was a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter, and he used to take us to the the fire station, and he let us play on the the trucks. You know, we'd climb all over the trucks, and and this sealed the deal. Let us go upstairs into the bunkhouse and slide down the pole. I mean, let me just tell you, as a seven-year-old, it doesn't get any better. You know, this is, this is nirvana. This is where I want to be, right? Um, and so for a long time, I wanted to be a firefighter. And, and then, you know, things happen. You know, uh, my, across the street from my grandma's house lived a police officer, and he had a gun. And who wouldn't want to do that, you know? And so I wanted to be a cop, you know, and for a while. And, and then I remember my grandpa took me to a rodeo, and I wanted to be a cowboy. You know, I think I wore my cowboy boots around everywhere for a while, and and then, you know, it kind of developed. I was going to be a physician. I thought that would be a great thing. And then teenage years hit, and it kind of derailed that whole plan. Um, went into electronics. Eventually became a clergyman. But that's not who I am. I'm not a clergyman. That's what I do. And you're not a school teacher or a mechanic or a pilot or a professor or whatever else you do, a nurse, doctor. I don't, that's not who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in Christ. And we ought to still want to play that childhood game. What do you want to be when you grow up? Here's the answer. I want to be a saint. I want to be someone who looks like Jesus. St. Thomas, the one who's called the doubter. He was also called Didymus. Twin. I always thought Thomas had a twin, you know. Maybe Tony. It was Thomas and Tony, you know, these two brothers. It's not. It's because Thomas was a twin of Christ. That people said he was the twin. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a saint. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.